Again, I'm glad you guys are tuning in uh, with us this morning. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Revelation 21. Uh, my name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. And again, we're glad you're with us. So uh, recap where we were a couple of weeks ago. We haven't looked at Revelation for the past couple of weeks. So uh, you could say the slate has been wiped clean. God's cleansed the earth. So there's... Uh, uh, the, the rebellion that began uh, back in heaven when Lucifer wanted to usurp the, the place of the Father, that's all been squashed. The devil, the beast, the false prophet, death, Hades, all of those things have been thrown in the lake of fire. Uh, all of the brokenness and all of the wickedness that entered into the world when Adam and Eve sinned in, in Genesis chapter 3, that's all been taken care of. Uh, along with all of the people who've rejected Jesus, they've also been consigned to the lake of fire. So, so what's left is God. And God's people. And from Revelation 21.1 to 22.5, we see what our future with him looks like. It's a, it's a picture of forever. Remember, all this is vision, 100% true, not literal. You can really get uh, tripped up in the symbolism, but there's three major elements. We've got uh, a new heaven and a new earth. That's what we're going to talk about today. We've got a new Jerusalem, which we're going to talk about next week. And then we have a new dynamic. We relate to God in a different way. God actually dwells with us, uh, which we'll talk about in two weeks. So new heaven and new earth. And as a part of that, there's a new order. And we're going to mention that uh, a bit today, that that new order is lived out on this new earth. So we have new heaven and new earth, new Jerusalem, and then this new dynamic of God dwelling with his people. So I'm going to read the first eight verses of chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there's no longer any sea. So that's what we'll talk about today. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. That'll be next week. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That'll be in two weeks. God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He was seated on the throne that said, I'm making all things new. There's the new order. Then he said, write these down, for the words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it's done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they'll be my children." But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. So uh, we're going to look at several scriptures today. I don't want to overwhelm you with Bible passages. But what I found is most Christians don't spend very much time thinking about heaven. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about our future and when we do think about it, we tend to think about it wrongly. Uh, kind of the popular picture is that when we die, we're going to become fat baby angels and float around on clouds and play harps all day. And that's just not true. So we're going to bounce around a little bit. All the scriptures will be on the screen. You can uh, take note of them and go back and look at them in more detail uh, when you have a chance. But again, I, just for the sake of some context, we don't get a ton in the Bible about our future. But it's important that we grab on to the few places where... Uh, God does tell us, give us some hints about what that will look like. So first, new heaven and new earth. So uh, that doesn't mean that this one is going to get balled up and thrown away. God's actually going to redeem this planet that we're on. And when you hear new heavens, 
Don't think heaven, the place where God lives. God's not getting a new house. Heavens, think of, think of the sky. So we're getting a new everything above our head, and we're getting a new everything under our feet. But it's a, it's a, re, it's a redeemed version of what we currently have. Romans 8 says this, For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, that's God, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So there's the idea that this earth that we have, again, it's not going to be tossed away. God's not starting from scratch. He's going to redeem this earth that he's created. There's continuity between the new earth and the current earth. And you can see that in Genesis 1, the first time we read, first verse in the Bible, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you read through Genesis chapter 1, I think you see parallels to what the new earth is going to be as well. Genesis 1-2 talks about uh, the, the Holy Spirit hovering over the deep. And we read here in Revelation that really the only specific we got was there would be no more sea. And does that mean there's not going to be a beach in the new earth? I don't think so. Uh, that idea of deep in Genesis 1-2, that was considered the place where chaos lived and, and dwelled. And God formed order out of chaos. That's what he did in Genesis chapter 1. And so we read in Revelation 21 that there's no more sea. The idea is that that place of chaos, it's been done away with. There's none of that any longer. So we have a, a new earth. It's going to be similar in some ways to the one that we currently live in. We see in Genesis 1, God created the sun. He created the moon. He created the stars. He created the land. He created birds and fish and animals. He created um, plants. And then he created Adam and Eve. And he said, all of this is very good. It, it was wonderful. And, and there's not, God's not saying, well, scrap that. And I'm going to come up with a plan B. That was his original design, his original intention. He created that world in, for Adam and Eve to live in and, and for them to flourish and for their children and their children and their children and their children to flourish. And Revelation 21 and 22 to me is a picture of God again recreating that or transforming the earth that we have in a sense taking us back in a sense to Genesis chapter 1. Taking us back to Genesis 1 and 2 before the fall. So there's going to be points of Continuity. It's going to be similar to the earth that we live on to a degree. I think there's going to be plants and there's going to be animals and there's going to be birds and there's going to be fish and, and, there's, and we're going to have real bodies and we're going to walk around and we're going to do things other than play music all day. There's going to be points of continuity with, uh, with this world, but there's also going to be points of discontinuity and, and they're really significant and honestly they're impossible for us to imagine. The major point of discontinuity, the dissimilarity is there's not going to be any, uh, no, no, no consequence of the fall. And we can't fathom what it's like to live in a world where there's no brokenness, where there's no decay, where there's no death. We can't fathom living in a world where there's no wickedness, where there's not an enemy who's prowling around like a lion looking for people to steal and kill and destroy. We can't fathom, we, we, we don't even, we can even list all of the effects of the fall much less imagine a world where none of those things have ever uh, happened, where none of those things have taken place. So there will be continuity. It will be familiar, but the discontinuity will be great. And the thing that's missing is everything that's broken and everything that's wicked and everything that's evil. Both the people who've rejected Jesus 
the enemy who's led them astray, and then again, all of the consequences of the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, I was thinking uh, in Genesis 1, we read that God gave the animals the plants to eat. So all the animals were originally er herbivores, and that's what, and Adam and Eve were vegetarians. They were given plants to eat. So I don't, so to me, I guess I could say like one of the, maybe the only good thing of the fall is, is steak nachos, and I don't know if we're going to get those. I don't know what meat, are we all going to be vegetarians again in the new heaven and the new earth? There's pictures of this great banquet. I don't know if we're all going to start liking tofu and it's going to taste a whole lot better or, or what when we move in, but there's going to be differences. Can you imagine a lion that's not a predator? What's a lion if you're not scared of him ripping your face off when you see him? Because he's not a predator. What's a shark that you don't have to worry about biting you? What's a snake that's not venomous? I don't know what it looks like, again, to remove all of these effects of the fall, including the whole idea of, of death. And that's in the animal world and us eating animals. I, I don't know where poison ivy fits in the new heaven and the new, new earth. I don't know about mosquitoes and cockroaches. I don't know how if those things make it through, if they make it through in a different way. It, it, we're going to be perfectly suited to this new environment. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 15 says this. Let me find it here in my notes. Paul is talking about uh, these bodies that we get, and I think this is good for us, and it's also helpful in terms of thinking about what's going to happen to the earth, the way it's going to be transformed. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead... The body that is sown, that's this one, is perishable. It is raised, that's the new one, imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, the new one will be raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, the new one will be raised in power. It's sown a natural body, the new one will be raised a spiritual body. So this new body that we have is going to be perfectly suited to this new environment. So I think that means no allergies. Your body's not going to be allergic to anything. You're going to be perfectly suited. Again, we can't even, the, the list is so long, we can't even begin to fathom what this new earth is going to be like when it's perfectly suited to us and there's no consequences of the fall. There's not tornadoes and hurricanes. There's not birth defects. Your body doesn't wear out or run down. You eat because you want to, not because you have to. It's going to be, a, again, it's, it's a new earth. There are points of continuity. Read Genesis 1. But the dissimilarity is going to be great because evil has so infected so much of our existence. Again, to, to pull all of that out and all of the brokenness that's a result of the fall. Everything being made new. It's a phenomenal promise that God has given us. And he, he says it's done. Even though it's in the future, he speaks of it as a fact. It's guaranteed. Take it to the bank. And he says that his, those who overcome, they can inherit it. That's, that's our inheritance as his children, is this new heaven and this new earth that he's created just for us and these new bodies he's going to give us that are perfectly suited to this new environment where there's this new order, no death, no mourning, no crying, no pain, no tears. Phenomenal picture that we get. If you want to read a book, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, Super creative. He's imaginative. It'll get your mind kind of spinning. I think that's his, it's short, maybe it's 180 pages, and it's his take on heaven and hell. I thought it was super interesting. Another book, not quite as creative, called Garden City by John Mark Comer. Uh, he's, he looks ahead at new heaven and new earth and then kind of dials back and says, so here's how we should be living today in light of that future. So great divorce. 
C.S. Lewis, it's a great beach book. Garden City, John Mark Comer, you may need your thinking cap on for that a little bit, but it's really good. I would encourage you to read one of those two books if you're interested in beginning to think a little bit more about the future and what the future is that God has, is creating and preparing for you. So what does that, any of that have to do with 2020, June 7th, 2020? Uh, I was thinking about kind of the, our current moment, I guess, as a nation, and something from Genesis 127 is super important for us. Genesis 127 says God created humankind, mankind in his image, and male and female, he created them in his image. He created them. Three times it says he's made us or created us in his image. The whole foundation for human rights is based in Genesis 127. That's it. If all we are is a, an accumulation of accidental mutations over time, then nobody has any dignity or worth or value. We're all just accidents. But if we've been created in the image and by the hand of the eternal God, then everybody has worth and dignity and value just by the virtue of the fact that they've been conceived. That's why Christians are pro-life. You may say we do a good job of being pro-birth. We're not so great at being pro-life. But that's where that comes from. That everybody, regardless of their age or their gender or their race or their ethnicity or their character or their religion, has incredible worth and value and dignity simply because they've been created in the image of God. Just by virtue of the fact that they're here, that gives them worth and value and dignity because they bear the imprint of God on them. And for many of us, we kind of lose sight of that. It's easy for us to jump straight to what people are doing. We, we evaluate people's behavior, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But we look at circumstances, and we look at what people are doing, and kind of try to figure out, well, do they deserve that? Do they not deserve that? But we forget that we have to start with the fundamental reality that everybody's been created in the image of God. That's where we have to start. And if anybody's being treated in a way that violates that fundamental reality then that treatment's wrong. It's sinful, and then we should work to stop it. And we can disagree on what violates the, the, the fundamental reality that we're created in the image of God. We can have disagreements over what treatment violates that reality. But we could all say what happened to George Floyd or Breonna Taylor or Ahmaud Arbery, that, all of that, that absolutely violates. And so that should stir outrage in us. If it doesn't, the issue is ours. We need to ask God to soften our hearts. Our hearts have become hardened and callous. And you can apply that beyond just those situations. You can apply that to 50 people in a boat for 20 people trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea. Regardless of their behavior, they're created in the image of God. We can apply that to people who are jumping a fence illegally to be in this country. Regardless of whether or not you think they should be sent back, the way they're treated... Fundamentally, these are people who are created in the image of God, and therefore they have worth and dignity and value and need to be treated as such. Even if, we, even if they're sent home, they need to be treated with worth and dignity and value simply because they've been created in the image of God. And then Jesus ups the ante, and he says, you've got to love your neighbor as yourself, and your neighbor is anybody you come into contact who has need. And then he raises the bar even higher when he says about fellow Christians, you've got to love them the way I love you. Everybody's created in the image of God. And then those who we come across who have need, we're, they have a claim on us. They become our neighbors. And we're responsible to extend kindness to them. And then for those who are in the family of faith, 
We're to lay our lives down for them. None of that's easy. All of that requires grace and mercy and humility and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. It's all rooted in creation, God's original design and intention that he never, never negated. He never went back on it. He never erased Genesis 1 and 2. It's still written, pre-fall. This is what God wants for people. We see in Revelation 21 and 22, again, it's not a, a burning down of everything that has been. It's a transformation and a redemption. In a sense, we, the, the word, you can use it, recapitulation of what we see in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. We see it again in Revelation 21 and 22. In a sense, our future is, is our past, just redeemed and transformed. I was thinking about these protests also, and it's low-hanging fruit to criticize the violence as Christians. Easy to do that. No place for the looting and the burning and all that stuff. 100%. Low-hanging fruit, easy. No place for that in the kingdom. I think the challenge for us, most of you who are watching this is are white, I think the challenge for us as white people is to say, am I going to allow the, the nature of the protest, the fact that it's gotten violent at times, to uh, shield me from having to answer the question or wrestle with the reason behind the protest? And that's where I would push you a bit, again, as white people, easy to condemn looting and burning and beating and uh, absolutely no place for that in the kingdom. No excuse. Turn the other cheek, Jesus says, period, dot, the end. But don't allow the fact that it's, are we allowing the fact that it's become violent, we don't like the nature of it, to then say, well, then I don't have to deal with the reason behind it. I think that's kind of cowardly. And so I would encourage you to ask two questions, kind of hard questions of yourself. One question, and this ties back into Genesis 1, is what do you see when you look at a black guy or a Hispanic woman, an Asian man? What do you see? Do you see someone who's been created in the image of God, yes or no? Do you see someone who has inherent worth and value and dignity just because God made them, yes or no? I'm not asking if you and your buddies put sheets on your head on Saturday night and go burn crosses in people's front yard for kicks. I'm asking what's going on in your heart. Think about the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, don't commit murder. That's external. That's kind of an easy one to avoid. I say to you, don't call somebody a fool. That's a hard issue. Much different. He takes obedience from out here and then pushes it in here. And I'm asking you to do the same thing. I'm not asking if you're an overt, blatant racist. I'm saying in here. How do you see people? Do you see them all as being created in the image of God? Do you see those that you come across? People who are poor, who are homeless, who are gay, who are black, who are Muslim, who are Democrats, whatever the boogeyman is for you. Do you see them as your neighbor and someone who then has a claim on you? And if they're a follower of Jesus... Even if you disagree with them, do you see them as someone for whom you're called to lay down your life? That's a question. We need to wrestle with a second question. I would encourage you, again, as white people, for us to say we're part of the majority culture. 75% of the people in the U.S. are white. We're part of that. If you're white, just to ask the question, how, how am I contributing to this current situation? Just ask the question. If you're not willing to ask the question, you're either really arrogant or you're really scared. 
Neither one of those is great. Just ask the question and then give the Holy Spirit a chance to speak to you. And if what he says is your hands are clean, then your hands are clean. And nobody needs to make you feel guilty about that. Your hands, your conscience is clean if God says so. And if he brings something to mind, you don't need to beat yourself up. You just repent and move in a new direction. But you at least, I would say we at least need to ask the question. Is there anything I've done that's contributed to this current unrest, if that's what we want to call it? Just ask and give him a chance to speak. And for many of us, again, we just move so quickly beyond, well, I'm not a racist. We never give the Lord a chance to convict us. It's similar. Most of us are rich. Well, we all are. Historically and globally, we're all rich. And so we always need to be asking the question, God, am I putting too much trust in money? And the reason we ask the question is because we have a lot of money, and so we're prone to put our trust in it. And so we just want to make sure that we're making ourselves available for conviction. And the same thing's true. We're white. We're part of the majority, the majority culture. And so we just need to ask the question, God, am I contributing to the current situation? Am I contributing to this unrest? Am I contributing to the injustice that we see in our country right now? Yes or no? Give them a chance to convict you or not and then move on. I want to close with this. So everybody's created in the image of God. Everybody's going to live forever. The only question is, is where? We get this three-part invitation from Jesus here in uh, Revelation 21. It's actually from the Father. I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. So that's an offer of salvation, the water of life. To those who are victorious, they'll inherit all of this. So that's an inheritance, the new heavens and the new earth. And I will be their God and they will be my children. That's adoption. So there's salvation, there's an inheritance, and there's an adoption. And it's all ours for the asking. It's interesting to me that the, the same people are referred to as the thirsty and to, as the overcomers. I don't necessarily think of those things as synonymous. When I think about people who are thirsty, I think about people who are weak. They're tired, they're worn out, they need a drink. When I think about people who are overcomers, I think about people who are strong. They won. They're victorious. And we, those who are following Jesus, are described as both. We're thirsty overcomers, or we're overcomers who are always aware that we're thirsty. We always remember our need our dependence upon the Lord, and that everything we have is a gift that he's given to us. And we also remember the importance of faithfulness, of staying true to him, being obedient to him, being led by the Holy Spirit. Both of those things are tied together. And again, there's this threefold reward or promise for all of those. There's salvation, there's inheritance, and there's adoption. We'll talk more about those things in the coming weeks. And then the contrast, the other people who are going to live forever, they're just going to live forever separated from Jesus instead of in relationship with him. And those, those eight sins that are listed, it's called a vice list, those eight sins in that vice list, those are all tied to chapters 2 and 3. Way back the beginning, chapter 2 and 3, when Jesus is doing a survey of each of these seven churches that are getting this letter, and he says, here are the things that are going well in your congregation, and here are the areas where you're struggling. Remember, these churches are being squeezed by the Roman Empire, and so they're being tempted to compromise, to worship the emperor, 
So you have this idea, like, if you're a coward, if you give in to that, you're out. If you're an unbeliever, so that he's talking to the church and he's calling them unbelievers. If you, in that moment, if you're denying Jesus, that's called apostasy. If you're doing that, you're out. There are others in other congregations where people are being tempted to, to they're being enticed by Babylon, by Rome, and by its, its affluence and its influence and its immorality. And that's where the sexual immorality comes in. That's where idolatry comes in. And, and, and so those sins are really tied to the situation of those seven churches that are being squeezed and are being tempted in their context. For us, that vice list might look a little bit different. There might be a different eight things uh, that would be listed, but the, the connection point is everybody's created in the image of God, and therefore everybody's going to live forever. The question is just, where? You want to inherit this salvation and this new heaven and this new earth with this new order where there's no death and no mourning and no crying and no pain? where all brokenness and wickedness and evil has been taken care of? Do you want to live forever with God as your Father dwelling with you? Or do you want to live forever in the lake of fire, whatever that happens to be? When you put it like that, it seems like a pretty easy choice. But for many of us, we continue to wrestle. And so I want to take a few minutes as we close and pray. And there's three or four things I want us to pray about. And that's the first one. like evangelism class 101. Which group are you in? None of us want to label ourselves cowardly or unbelieving or vile. That's an umbrella for people who've rejected Jesus, who've said no to this gracious offer that he's extended to us, this offer of salvation. You can drink from this river of life, this inheritance, this everything I'm making new, it's all yours. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. You can eat from any of these trees except for that one. All the rest, everything else you see is yours. There won't even be that restriction in the new heaven and the new earth. There won't be one tree that you can't eat from. This invitation to relationship, to be adopted into the family of God. If you've never said yes to that invitation, I would encourage you wherever you are to do that now. It's just that simple, God. Yes. To the thirsty, you get to drink. So all you're doing is acknowledging you're thirsty. God, I'm thirsty. I need you. Have mercy on me. Save me. Any of those phrases work. And then tell somebody. Let one of us know on the staff. We'd love to connect with you and help you take those initial steps in beginning a life with Jesus. Many of you have already made that decision. It's wonderful. I would encourage you to continue to see yourself as both the thirsty and as the overcomers. You're both. You're both always. I think about in Genesis 1 when, when God makes Adam and Eve. They're created in the image of God. You think about all of the, the glory that's associated with that. And he makes Adam out of dirt. 
and all of the kind of humility associated with that. It's both. And we've got to keep both in mind. We're always thirsty. We always have need. And we're always called to overcome and given the resources to do that. Is there one of those that you feel like this morning you would say, I'm not, I'm not aware. Maybe you're not aware of your thirstiness. And I would say, just ask the Lord, God, make me thirsty again. Remind me of how much I need you. He's not going to throw your life into chaos to show you how much he, you need him. You don't need to be afraid of praying the prayer. He's a good father. He will lead you to the truth of that. If you're not currently aware of it, if you would say, I'm not thirsty, honestly, that's a dangerous place to be. Ask him right now. God, increase my thirst for you. Remind me of my need for you. I don't know if it's medically true, but I've heard that when people are, are dehydrated at some point, they're not even thirsty anymore. And that's a super, I don't know if that's true or if that's just an old wives tale, but I know spiritually that can be true. And that's a super dangerous place to be. So ask him, God, increase my thirst. Remind me of my need. For some of you, you feel like you're getting your teeth kicked in. You're worn out, you're run down. Honestly, you'd say you're being run over. And you need to be reminded that you're an overcomer. Not because of your grit and determination, but because the spirit of the one that raised Jesus from the dead lives within you. And he will empower you every minute of every day to live faithfully and fruitfully. And you may just need to be reminded of that and maybe to re-engage that truth. God, would you fill me again? Would you empower me again? Would you deepen my roots so I can stand firm into the end? We'll close with these issues of our day. When you look at people, what do you see? And if it's something other than he, she has been created in the image of God, therefore he, she is someone of incalculable worth and value and dignity. Let's ask the Lord to soften our hearts. Just do that. Maybe it's something like, God, I confess, I tend to look at behavior and what people deserve. I jump there. I often forget. Everybody that I encounter has been formed and shaped and knitted together by you. And deserves to be treated as such. Maybe ask the question. I would encourage you to ask the question. God, how have I contributed to our current, this current situation? How have my actions or inactions brought us to this place where people are getting choked out in the street and hunted down when they're on a jog?
See if he brings something to mind. And if so, just confess. There's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus. All sins are equally covered by his blood. Receive the forgiveness that he wants to give you and then ask him, what does it look like for me to move in a new direction? Then do what he says. Most likely it's going to be mustard seeds. He's not going to ask you to try to change the world. It'll be something really small and really simple and you'll think it's insignificant. That's the way it works. It's mustard seeds, not mustard trees. God, I pray for all of us, wherever we are. God, I pray that you would keep us close. I pray that you would constantly remind us of our thirst, of our need for you. And God, when we get complacent, I pray that you would increase our hunger and our thirst. I want to constantly be pursuing you and aware of our need for you, creating those situations in our own heart where you're welcomed, that low pressure that we talked about last week where the wind is drawn, the wind of your spirit. God, would you be strengthening us this week? Will we live as overcomers this week in the power of your spirit? And God, would you show us what it is for us in this city, in this day? What does it mean for us to be a good neighbor? to everybody that we come into contact with, to begin by looking at them through the eyes of created in your image, then to move to what does it mean to love them, to be a good neighbor. God, would you help us? I pray you'd have mercy on us, and I pray you'd have mercy on our community. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you guys for tuning in. Hope you all have a great week, and we will talk soon.